This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. When you're in the produce aisle picking out your favorite vegetables, you're probably not thinking about the industrial farming system that got them there. And you won't until those veggies just disappear. Because here's the thing. This industrial farming system is just not working. It contributes to a big chunk of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. It's polluting rivers and lakes and decreasing biodiversity. All month long, our sustainability series is looking at how the way we farm can work better. And today we're talking about how the way we farm impacts our soil and water and what we can do to save it. Here to tell us more is Jean Brokish, Midwest Deputy Director of American Farmland Trust, an organization that works with farmers across the country to promote sustainable agricultural practices. Welcome to Reset, Jean. Glad to be here, Sasha. Also with us is Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert, who directs Loyola University Chicago's Baumart Center for Social Enterprise and Responsibility. Hey, Karen. Hey, Sasha. Last week, Karen, we, we talked about how industrial farming and climate change leave crops more vulnerable to pests and, and weeds, making it harder to grow food. Why is soil such a big deal in this conversation? Yeah, soil's huge in this conversation. And even the way you started talking about the foods we eat, you know, the vast majority of the food that we eat comes from the soil. It's the anchor of our food system. Uh, but that soil is really how we get it. And soil is actually a little ecosystem. So it's filled with microorganisms, uh, healthy soil actually has air and water in it. And that little ecosystem is what produces the food that we eat. It helps yields be strong. And it's the foundation for everyday living because it's all coming from food that's grown in this soil. Tell us how soil can be part of capturing carbon and why that's important. Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, climate change is obviously something that we're continuing to deal with and looking for ways to address. And you know, the first part of that is to reduce our emissions, but we've emitted too much already. Um, so we've got to get it out of there. And it, what's really interesting is that soil can help us there. And it starts with plants. So plants actually take in carbon dioxide. It's part of that photosynthesis system. Mm -hmm. And they bring it in and they bring it down into their roots. And uh, that carbon then can get captured in the soil. It's filled with broken down plant matter. It's part of that ecosystem. And so in this way, we're able to take the carbon, which we, we found in the ground to begin with in most cases, and burned it and put it up in the atmosphere. Well, the plants grab it for us, bring it back down. And if we can get it into the roots and into that healthy soil, we can pull carbon back out and put it where we found it. Gene, let's bring you in here. We know soil is the lifeblood of a farm in many ways, right? So I want you to give us a visual if you will. What does healthy soil look like compared to unhealthy soil? Uh, sure. So uh, Karen mentioned, you know, some of that carbon that soil can capture for us and really the most uh, telling way to, um, you know, estimate or assess the health of a soil is, is based on the amount of carbon in it. And generally we think of the darker soils as healthier uh, soils and that darker color is um, most often just a reflection of the amount of organic material and biology and carbon that's in the soil. And so, you know, you can you can tell a little bit by the color, but actually, if you um, soil scientists actually like to smell the soil, it has a real smell, um, earthy, uh, fresh kind of smell to it. And then, um, you know, if you pick up a a, group, a clod of soil in your hands. Um, you can maybe squeeze it and it'll hold itself together. Um, that's an indication of some of the particles and organic material. But also just um, looking at the surface of the soil, you know, maybe after a rainstorm, if it's 
if it's kind of like a sidewalk and all um, compacted and crusted over, that's generally not a healthy soil. We want to see some soil particles that will group together and maintain those pore spaces for the uh, rain and water to, and the roots to actually enter into the soil as well. So mm-hmm. all those, it's a kind of a multi-function um, around how do we really think of soil health. Good to know. The the Midwest gene, it, it's known for being fertile farmland, right? And that is due in large part to the the prairie that gave Illinois its nickname. But there isn't a lot of prairie left, which has changed the soil. So tell us, how has the shift to industrial agriculture affected the land in the state? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I think it's really important as we think about, uh, you know, our environment, what the history of it is. And, and definitely those tall grass prairies in um, Illinois, but also the forest in some of the other areas of the Midwest, um, you know, they were perennial cropping systems. They had something growing all year long. Generally, they were very diverse. And, um, you know, the soil wasn't tilled or disturbed all that often. And it's it's very different than what agriculture uh, looks like for the most part. And um, even, you know, our, our very existence on the land, you know, whether it's your home or whether um, it's a school or whether it's a farm, you know, we're, we're replacing and we're kind of changing the makeup of the landscape there. So, um, you know, agriculture, Illinois, corn and soybean, generally less diverse than those prairie systems. Um, they have shortened seasons in terms of thinking about like how long is something growing and how long are the plants actively uh, growing and capturing that carbon and feeding the, the microbiology that's living in the soil. So it's really just a, a different system, mm-hmm. and there's ways that we can adapt that system to make it mimic and more like those natural systems. Water has to be drained away from crops, and many farmers in Illinois, they use tile drainage to do so. What does that look like? Help us picture yeah. this. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Um, so again, thinking of those prairies in Illinois, a lot of those were quite wet prairies. Um, and once we removed the prairie system, found that the soils just stayed waterlogged like a wet sponge, um, year round and certainly not something that we could drive tractors on or grow crops in or even, even build our houses on for that matter. And so, um, much of, much of the North, central third of Illinois and other parts of the Midwest, again, are tile drained. And you can just imagine those are kind of like, like if you had a, um, a pan of soil and you could put like a perforated straw at the bottom of it, Mm -hmm. um, that would allow that water to go into the straw. And then the straw carries the water out, um, to maybe a local ditch or a wetland or a pond or something like that. Um, that's basically what the tile system is. It's just a network of perforated pipes that are laid somewhere, you know, around three feet deep in the, uh, below the soil surface, um, which then pulls some of that water down and the water's not sitting right at the soil surface, which then of course creates the air pores, um, and a a better habitat for crops to grow. But this method, it solves one problem, but there are some consequences though, right? Uh, uh, That's true. That's true. If we're not managing, um, because if we're thinking about, we're creating like a drain in the system. And so if there is excess nutrients in the system or nutrients that are not actively being used by those microbes or um, the plants that are growing there, uh, those nutrients can move in the water um, into the tile system and then into the streams. And so, uh, yeah, it's definitely a concern. Um, there is a lot of attention on uh, nutrients getting into our water systems 
especially with, you know, the Gulf of Mexico um, and the hypoxic zone, which is basically just the problem of extra nutrients making its way down the Mississippi River. Um, but there are things that farmers, again, farmers can do. We can manage these systems um, and, and try to minimize the amount of nutrients going into that tile drain to begin with. Karen, fertilizers, fertilizers are often used to add nutrients back into the soil, as we've mentioned, but a lot of the fertilizers end up elsewhere, right? And, and not on the ground where they're supposed to be. Why is that? We do add a lot of fertilizer. Um, it's really to essentially mimic that healthy soil system that we were just hearing about so that the crops can grow. But we're putting fertilizer um, and pesticides, quite honestly, onto the soil, but it's not always staying there. And a lot of that is the soil health may be difficult, it may be degraded, but then it's also the rains will hit and the, the water gets wa- washes it away. It washes some of the soil off, and, but it's definitely washing those fertilizers out. So they're not on the cropland where people want it to help grow. It's getting off to the side and into waterways. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about how to maintain healthy soil whether it's for major farms or your own home garden. Our guests are Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert and Jean Brokish, Midwest Deputy Director of American Farmland Trust. Jean, you mentioned no-till is a major one that many farmers are adopting. What is that? Uh, So instead of um, plowing, if we think about how our grandparents might have uh, managed their farms, they had a plow that went out after the crops were finished, after they were harvested, and actually, you know, turned the entire soil surface over and buried any plant residue that was there, uh, leaving the surface of the soil bare um, and much more vulnerable to erosion and, and runoff. Um, and uh, we've learned and we've improved the system, um, and now many farmers are using no-till or reduced till, which is um, maybe uh, only tilling a very narrow band where they're actually going to plant the seeds in the spring or not tilling at all, and their um, planting equipment is actually equipped to um, – you don't need to plow the soil at all. You're just, like, planting the corn or the soybeans or your pasture or whatever right mm-hmm. into the standing crop residue from the previous year. And again, the the major benefit of that is um, we're just protecting that soil surface and reducing that erosion, which is a problem for the farmer, of course, but as Karen mentioned, also can be a primary conduit to carry some of those nutrients and pesticides into waterways. Yeah, we spoke with Jim Martin, who's a fifth generation corn and soybean farmer in LaSalle County, who has started using the no-till method. And we talked with him also about how it provides economic benefits. You're saving labor, you know, you're saving fuel, and you're doing a better job of protecting the environment. Gene, explain this a bit more. How can adopting this strategy benefit farmers, and how widespread a practice is this, really? That's a, a great question. So, uh, Jim mentioned, you know, we're saving uh, labor and fuel. Um, if if we're minimizing or reducing the number of times we're driving across the field, um, we're just creating uh, less, we're using less fuel. Um, we're driving the tractors less, we're using less fuel. So that is one benefit, both economically and environmentally. Um, and then farmers are also just seeing, you know, over time their soils improve by using no-till. Um, we're preserving those that uh, soil aggregate, that clumping that I was talking about, and we're preserving some of that pore space by not disturbing the soil as often through no-till. Um, uh, you know, across Illinois, um, I would say, you know, somewhere about 70% of the soybeans are generally planted with this method. Mm-hmm. Um, 
farmers are finding good luck in using no-till on soybeans. Uh, corn, the adoption rate is a little bit lower, but there's some new technologies and new approaches people are using. I'm always trying to trial and error and tweak the system to find a way that makes it work um, because I think, you know, most farmers recognize soil as their primary asset too. And so they're mm. really interested in reducing the erosion and improving the soil health. Well, Farmer Jim is also using cover crops. Well, five years ago, I just started experimenting. The idea is is to, you know, have a cover on the ground year-round, not just with your cash crop, your corn and soybeans, but like over winter, you have, you know, some living roots, you know, in that soil with, with a cover crop that's going to protect, uh, you know, again, protect erosion, you know, protect the, the soil from washing away, and it's going to sequester certain nutrients and keep them in the soil. Karen, cover crops can help with crop rotation. Why is diversifying crops important? As we're thinking about this, the soil and really anchoring it there, it is that microorganism ecosystem. And so having that diversity in the soil and then the diversity in the planting is a mutually reinforcing kind of positive cycle. But it also gets interesting when you think about the different kinds of plants. Now, and the farmer was just talking about you know, cover crops. And some cover crops can actually help with nitrogen in the soil. And that's often a fertilizer that we would add instead. Mm-hmm. And so you can think about kind of a virtuous cycle of different ways to treat the land and then to keep that land healthy and robust. Uh, and then we can grow more from it for longer periods of time. Gene, talk briefly about how practices like no-till or cover crops, how they reduce a need for pesticides. That is a concern if, you know, if you're going to have to. Jean, go ahead. You know, yeah, thank you. Um, I think just generally all these practices bring the life and the biology back to the soil. Um, Soil is definitely living. Um, You know, before the break, you mentioned it's not dirt. It's definitely, it's full of microorganisms, fungi, all sorts of things that are cycling those nutrients and and providing um, disease and pest uh, resistance um, and resiliency to the crops. So if we are making our soil healthier and more active and we're, we just are allowing the farms and the crops to benefit more from those natural cycles and that biology and finding that balance from a nutrient cycling and a disease and, and pesticide and weed um, system. So it's really just an all system. If you're bringing the biology back to it, Mother Nature will help us out. So we also spoke with uh, Jim Martin about how investing in new equipment and crops can be cost prohibitive for some farmers. Here's what he had to say on that. That is a concern if, you know, if you're going to have to put out a lot of money to invest in new equipment in order to do to do something like a cover crop. But one way to look at it, maybe you're saving some money back. You know, we talked about no-till. You know, and you could put some of that money you're saving there towards towards an investment, you know, in a cover crop that's going to pay off in the future. What can help expand access, Jean? There are a handful of uh, farm bill related programs through the U.S. US Department of Agriculture that provide some cost shares. Almost think of it like grants to make some management transitions or to cover the feed cost um, that farmers can take advantage of. And uh, actually, there's quite a few around cover crops. Um, There's a lot of hope and and benefits of cover crops, uh, both to the farmer and the environment and, and, um, you know, communities and waterways. And um, so the Illinois Sustainable Ag Partnership, uh, which is 
a coalition of, of different organizations working in Illinois around sustainable agriculture and soil health and water quality. We just released a directory of cover crop incentives um, and that's available on ISAP's website, which is ilsustainableag.org. Um, but, you know, farmers who might be interested in adopting cover crops should look at that and see. Um, some of it is just like $10 per acre, which doesn't offset the whole cost for seed and planting the cover crops. But it, it might be a little bit of support to just help them get through that learning curve in the initial few years um, until their soils improve. And then they can start seeing the benefits through nutrient cycling that we talked about. That was Jean Brokish, Midwest Deputy Director of American Farmland Trust. Thank you so much for your time, Jean. My pleasure. Karen Weigert will be sticking around. Back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. Before the break, we talked about best practices for soil health and how poor soil can contaminate our rivers, lakes, and in some cases, our drinking water. Here to tell us how water and plants can be part of addressing this is Jill Costell, Senior Environmental Engineer at the Wetlands Initiative. Hi, Jill. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Paul Botts is here, too, Executive Director of the Wetlands Initiative. Hi, Paul. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And Karen Weigert, Reset Sustainability Contributor, is still with us. Hey, Karen. Hey, Sasha. So, Paul, I'll start with you. We learned about how poor soil health can lead to fertilizer running off into our rivers and lakes. What does it mean when that happens, though? And how does fertilizer runoff affect water? Well, what it basically does is overwhelm the system. And when fertilizer uh, runs off that it, into the water system, it is providing too much nutrients all at once. So we've all seen either in person and, or on the news algae blooms. Uh, whether it's the western end of Lake Erie or whether it's the uh, dead zone, as it's called, in the northern end of Gulf Mexico. There also have been some in some of our major rivers and local lakes. Um, that is nutrients overwhelming the water body uh, and then causing this giant algae bloom, and then the algae die, and they take all the oxygen out of the water or most of it for a certain period of time. Interesting. Karen, what are the drinking water concerns with fertilizer runoff? Yeah, it's very related, and it, people in our region get their drinking water from lots of different places. We obviously, right here in Chicago, get ours from the lake, um, but you can have groundwater as a primary source uh, for many folks. And so you're asking similar questions. What's getting into that water? Um, what is it in terms of, is it fertilizers? Could it be pesticides? And really trying to ensure that water is safe. And it, we're at the stage now nationally where contamination in water, lakes and streams and beyond, the primary source is agricultural runoff. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to think about this holistically for all of our water sources. Well, don't we have sophisticated filtration systems to help combat that? Well, not from the farms, not not the not the nutrients we're talking about, the fertilizer. Um, that's running off, as you heard in the previous segment. You know, the drainage tiles or farm tiles, field tiles, those are all the same thing which are uh, increasingly widespread in the Midwest. The Midwest turns out to be sort of the place on the globe where that technique makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. And so what that does is it concentrates all that runoff just three or four feet underground, and then it puts it right into the stream. And so what you have is uh, – and that none of that is covered by the Clean Water Act. Uh, Agriculture has always been exempted from the Clean Water Act since the law was first passed. And uh, the farmers, of course, are, are – eager to have it stay that way. Uh, and part of where we come in, where Jill's project comes in, is sort of helping them get ahead of it in a different way. Yeah. Well, we talked earlier, Paul, about how this land used to be covered in prairie. Mm-hmm. Um, but there also were so many more wetlands, right? So 
What is a wetland, and and what role do they play in nature? Explain that. Well, a wetland is uh, at the simplest level. A wetland is a place which is normally always or on some kind of intermittent but regular basis wet. And what happens is that the biota, the insects, the plants, the animals all over time evolve for that and become native to that type of situation. And tall grass prairie and wetland are actually not two separate things. This is a thing that I had to learn upon joining the Wetlands Initiative because uh, I, I think we all grow up a sort of school book uh, impression would be that there's the big mountains and then there's the big swamps and then there's the big prairie and they're three completely different things and big forests. Yeah. In fact, no. Uh, a healthy tall grass prairie system has wetland threaded all the way through it and that was true for Illinois and the Midwest for millennia. And so when you are farming the great tall grass prairie, you are also farming a lot of wetlands. That's going to have to be dealt with in some of the ways we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Jill, let's bring you in here. Talk about how exactly wetlands help purify water. Yes, wetlands um, and their ability to clean water is one of the natural ecosystem services that wetlands provide. They do this through a number of physical, chemical, and biological processes. Um, the main one that we focus on through the Smart Wetland Program, where we're treating the nitrate that Paul mentioned coming through the tile, is a process called denitrification. And it's actually the things you don't see in the wetland that is doing the majority of that work, and that's the denitrifying microbes or the bacteria that are converting the nitrate into a harmless nitrogen gas. Paul, the, uh, the Wetlands Initiative um it has its roots in restoring wetlands, but as far as agriculture, you're not doing that. You're constructing wetlands right. on people's farms to deal with the problem of nitrogen in the water. That's right. Orient us. What does this look like? So what this is, and this is Jill and her team, what they do is they talk to farmers about how you can have a carefully placed, carefully constructed wetland with the right plants in it, and you can have that in your working farm, and I emphasize working farm. So this is not about taking large swaths of the nation's, actually the world's most productive farm belt out of production. Mm -hmm. This is about taking the right bits of it and putting these wetlands in, and then these wetlands can do this marvelous job of very naturally, entirely naturally treating this nutrient overload. And we are collecting the data as we do it. And so this is, in a nutshell, the pitch to the world of agriculture. Jill, tell us more about how these constructed wetlands work. Yeah, we they're specifically designed, as Paul mentioned, to capture the tile water, the subsurface drainage is under um, about 10 million acres of our row crop farmland. We intercept that. Um, and almost as you consider it almost like a pond, but we're not filling it up. So they are designed um, surface. Their area is least one percent of the drainage area we're capturing. And they're shallow emergent marsh okay. systems that prefer that make that habitat that we need to convert that nitrate into nitrogen gas. How many of these have you installed so far? We have to date installed six of these on working farms. What are the results that you're seeing? Uh, our research, as well as research that the Nature Conservancy in Illinois has shown that we're seeing 40 to 60 percent nitrate removal consistently in these wetlands. And that's important because the federal goal, there is a federal goal now, actually, that oh, really? was put in uh, targeting the Mississippi River watershed to be able to remove 45 percent 
of the nutrients running off from farms. So we're in the right range with these wetlands. And these constructed wetlands, Jill, they last for a long time, right? Yes, as long as there's water going through, and that's one of the benefits of this practice, is that it has a very long practice life. Once you get it, uh, the plant community established, we tease that you can set it and forget it. Um, we don't want them to forget the wetland because we want them to enjoy some of the other ancillary benefits. But yes, they will last um, decades and decades with very little maintenance. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about the power of plants and water to address the pollution that's caused by fertilizer runoff from farms. And we're talking with Jill Costell and Paul Botts of the Wetlands Initiative and Karen Weigert, Reset Sustainability Contributor. Karen, how do wetlands and addressing water pollution, how does this all fit into the larger goal of addressing climate change and uh, environmental degradation? Yeah, it absolutely fits right in the middle of it. Um, And part of that is just looking at how the world is changing as the climate changes, and we're seeing more of those high-intensity storm events. So, for example, the number of days where we get at least two inches of rain um, has increased 40% over the last 100 years. So we're seeing more of that, which means we have to ensure that the systems we use are adapting. Now, at the same time, we have to make sure we're emitting less. So some of the conversations we had earlier about mm-hmm. um, no-till farming, for example, that's about emitting less. And ways to use less fertilizer, there's fertile, there's fossil fuels used to make fertilizer. That's also about emitting less. But then we're having these changes happen. And so these wetlands, and particularly these constructed wetlands, are able to help us capture some of that stormwater and the water when it runs off of the land. And they're taking fertilizers uh, and soil off of the cropland and taking it into our waterways. And so climate change is exacerbating some of that. Now, constructed wetlands are being developed for different purposes. So larger sizes capture more water. But fundamentally, anything that's capturing what's running off of the land and keeping it out of our waterways Mm -hmm. is helping us in this changing climate. Jill, I want to dig more into your project here. Constructed wetlands, what kind of farmland is best for this? And and how do you talk to farmers about giving up some of their acres to install a small wetland? That's a great question. So we are focusing on row crops our corn and soybean farmers. That's where the majority and that's majority of our agricultural landscape in Illinois is farmed with corn and soybean. And those are the ones that have tile drainage. That's the kind of water we want to capture with these wetlands. But our messaging is really working with them and talking with them, addressing their concerns. Um, What is their farm operation? Could it fit in in their operation, do they have some acres that are not profitable, maybe a little wet part of the year or hard to farm? Would it be better than to convert those acres, take them out of corn and soybean and put them into a wetland, which is providing this solution, a part of the solution, to their nutrient loss reduction? You know, Paul, there's definitely an upfront cost to install these. How can farmers get help if they're interested in in building this on their farm? Well, there's a couple different ways. The big way uh, initially, and certainly for our our first few who are sort of our guinea pigs and have been helping us learn how to do this on their farms, uh, they can do they can enroll in the existing uh, farm bill programs. People may have heard of the Conservation Reserve Program. There's a whole alphabet soup that Jill's very expert in, uh, and a couple of those programs do pay for, will pay for the upfront cost of installing one of these wetlands. Actually, Jill helped get Illinois' uh, regulation up to speed on that, so it would move it along. 
Uh, that's one way. We do also have some interested farmers. We have a whole bunch more in the pipeline we're talking to. Some of them just want to do it themselves. They don't want to deal with the paperwork, oh. the federal enrollment. And yeah. it, these are very simple. Um, we draw it up. We do the schematics. That's Jill and her team. And then, you know, we have farmers who have backhoes, and they're skilled at doing that, and they can do that. And then we help them find the right plants and get it planted. So it's that's different ways to sort of cut it out uh, or cut down the cost or deal with the cost. Yeah. Um, and we've also been able to work with a contractor's association, LICA, which has been very generous in doing a couple of them at cost. So there's different things mm-hmm. to reduce that up front. And, Jill, we, we talked earlier about, you know, some farming strategies like no tillage that have – uh, direct economic benefit, but this isn't that. Um, you are, though, still talking about this as a way to avoid regulation. So can you tell us a bit more? Yeah, this is not a practice that's going to improve your, your crop yield by any means, but this is a voluntary practice, and this is trying to get ahead of that curve. We're yeah. trying to show that these practices, the soil health practices, these edge-of-field practices, such as the tile treatment wetland, will reduce, and we can show that reduction so we don't have to lead into regulation. With um, a changing climate, we are seeing more precipitation, which leads to more nutrient runoff. These smart wetlands don't address climate change exactly, but they help mitigate pollution, right? Well, adaptation. We, we use the word adaptation. Adaptation. And, and we must, because the, the, it's not just that the climate will change. The climate has changed. Right. And and we all know that, and the farmers know that perfectly well. And they're actually talking about that amongst themselves in a way they weren't just five or ten years ago. And so the vision is for this kind of constructed wetland to be normal in Midwestern farming, that, you know, my grandkids driving around the Midwest will see these little wetlands all over the place, just like right now we can drive around and see windbreaks, we can see certain things, grass waterways, if you know what to look for, that, that weren't normal, you know, generations ago. And if that happens, then a lot of those wetlands will do a lot of things, including being able to help deal with the excess water of the changing precipitation patterns. Well, I want you, in the minute we have left here, tell us about your partnership with Ducks Unlimited and how this will expand Smart Wetlands. Yes. Well, we're very excited about that because Ducks Unlimited, which is a very large national organization, they are a wetlands organization, of course, with a specific focus. But they have lots of long-term trust relationships with lots of Midwestern farmers. And so that is what we want, that trusted voice door opening. And Jill and her team now have this great new partner that has already begun Mm -hmm. to uh, introduce us to new farmers. And just in summary, this is one part of the solution. What does this need to be done in tandem with, Paul? Well, uh, lots of things. It has to be both the infield and the edge of field. And this first segment that you heard about with no-till and with changing how fertilizers are applied and used and so forth, that's about infield. Yeah. Combine it with edge of field. It's, it's all of a piece. It's not one magic silver bullet. That was Paul Botts and Jill Costell from the Wetlands Initiative and Karen Weigert, Reset Sustainability Contributor. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.